Well, we can turn back for a short time to the verse, the passage that we read there, Matthew 28. And we can reread verses 18 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, these uh, verses as no doubt most of us know, are often called uh, the Great Commission. Uh, and they summarize for us what uh, Jesus planned his church to be doing in the future. As he looked down the centuries to come, and as he uh, gazed at these 11 men that were standing in front of him, um, he seemed to be giving them an impossible task. As he highlighted, for example, that they had to go to make disciples of all nations, uh, we can look back to these individuals and see what they did. But sometimes it is useful just to try and imagine what they must have felt like when they heard this announcement made to them. Um, probably most of them had never been outside uh, the confines of um, Israel uh, before in their lives. And if you had asked them what was actually meant by the concept of all nations, they probably wouldn't have had a clue. All they knew was that he, who had now risen from the dead, was sending them out into the great unknown. And, uh, and when they went there, he informed them that there would be possible for them to make disciples in all these different nations. And that when these groups of disciples had been formed together, that the same process was to be adopted with each of the different groups. Wherever they were to be found throughout the world, they were to be uh, baptized and they were to be taught. And that was, uh, well, that must have been quite a, uh, shall we say, a shock to their system. And perhaps they might have felt, well, how can we do that? How is it possible for us to do that? And of course, the answer to that question is in the last statement of the verses that we just reread. And Jesus himself draws attention to it because whenever he used the word behold, well, we are meant to behold. And, and he says there, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's how they were going to do it. They had no idea how long the age was going to last. 2,000 years have already passed. There may be another 2,000 years before it comes to an end, or it may happen very soon. Who knows? In a certain sense, that's none of our business. 
to try and work out when the end is going to come. Because the one thing that's guaranteed about trying to work that one out is that you won't work it out. It's impossible. But the one thing we do know that is possible is that until the end of the age, there will always be opportunities for baptizing and teaching converts to Jesus. The passage, these three verses, no doubt they tell us quite a lot about baptism. I suppose it is a case that lots of people have different ideas about baptism, like what is the point of it, and so on. Some people imagine that baptism is kind of magical, and that the mere performance of the ritual uh, causes something to happen, something undefinable. And baptism is not magical. There's nothing special about the water. It's only a symbol, a symbol of pointing to something else. So some people regard it as magical, other people regard it as just something that gets done. And that, and that somehow, if it's not done, uh, we're missing out. And they fail to realize that baptism is a sign of entrance into something. It's an, it's an entrance into the kingdom of God. It's never something that just gets done. It's a door, a pointer to the rest of one's life. And therefore, it's important for us to bear that in mind. These verses themselves mention several features, and I just want to highlight five of them briefly. Uh, while we're thinking about it. And they're all connected to baptism. And first one is the greatness of Jesus. And the second one is a global community. And the third one is it's about God's families. Fourth one is it promises a great lifestyle. And the fifth one is gracious presence of Jesus. And these things are all indicated in what we're watching today, the baptism that's about to take place. The greatness of Jesus, first of all, Jesus said lots of surprising statements. We sometimes miss completely the impact of them because we've heard them so often. But if imagine if someone came up to us and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Sometimes it's just good to sit back 
and let the words of these statements just impact us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How did he get that authority? Sometimes the explanations can be a bit complicated because we don't always hold together how Jesus' progression took place. We know he's God. Later on in the verse, he's mentioned there the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's the Son. And being God, he's eternal. And being God, he's always been in charge. Since he's been God, he has all authority. And we might think, well, since that's the case, that's what it means when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. But that is not what he means. He doesn't mean all authority has been given to me because I am the eternal God. Instead, he means all authority has been given to me as part of a process that I engaged in when I agreed to become the savior of the world. Being the son of God, he could have stayed up in heaven, but instead he chose to come down to earth. Being the son of God, he could have just remained being divine, but he chose in addition to become human. And we're familiar with aspects of that because every year at uh, Christmas time we turn our minds to think about the Son of God becoming a man, or becoming an infant, actually. So the process of him getting all authority, it involved four stages. And each of these four stages is very important to remember. The four stages are his life, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension. His life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension are all very important as far as baptism is concerned. Because if one of them didn't happen, there would be no baptism. His life, what a wonderful life he lived, wasn't it? He just went around, as Peter says, doing good. What did Jesus do on Mondays? Doing good. Tuesdays. Wednesdays. 
Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Wherever he went, that's what he did, doing good. Why did he do good? Well, he did good because he was kind and he was compassionate and he had the abilities to help people in all kinds of situations. Some of the situations that he was in, he was the only one who could have done the good that was required. Such as when he fed the 5,000. There's lots of other examples of him doing good. So he did good because he was kind, and he did good because he had the resources, but he also did good because he was living to provide something. He was living to provide a perfect life. Because you and I, we need to have a perfect life if we want to get to heaven. But since none of you or me can do that, somebody else has got to do it for us. And Jesus did it for us. He lived a perfect life. A wonderful life. And when we hear the gospel and someone says to us, believe in Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, well, what about Jesus do we believe? And one thing we have to believe about him is he lived a perfect life. And the second thing is his death. He had a terrible death, didn't he? What could be worse than crucifixion? Well, it is something worse than crucifixion. It's to have something else happening to you at the same time. What was happening to Jesus at the same time as he was crucified? He was bearing the penalty of God's wrath. God's wrath against our sin. Crucifixion was a terrible experience. But it is safe to say that it was nothing in comparison to what was happening to him internally. In his soul, he experienced the wrath of God. Not against him personally, but against him as our representative. And on that death, he paid the penalty for sin. And baptism points to that. That's why there's water. Water points to the forgiveness of sin. And because he died, we can have our baptismal service.
but he had to do more than die. If he had remained dead, what kind of kingdom would he rule over? But that's a strange question, isn't it, if someone remains dead? He had to be raised, and he was raised. On the third day, he came out in great power, the new man, the head of the new humanity, the one who is going to become king. In order to win his throne, he had to defeat his enemies. His enemies were sin and the devil and death itself. And he defeated them there in the battlefield of the cross. And he rose triumphant a great day. This day celebrates it. Anything else happened in human history that we're meant to celebrate every week? The death of Jesus we're to celebrate. And today, when we opened our eyes, we should have said to ourselves, this is the day that the Lord has made to celebrate his triumph. But still, even if he was raised from the dead, there's no throne on earth big enough for him. There's only one throne that suits him, and that throne is not on earth but in heaven. How many thrones are there in heaven? How many real thrones are in heaven? One. And Jesus, that's where he's gone when he ascended. He's gone to the throne of God. He was there as the eternal son. But he's also now there as the ascended man. And he's now at work. He didn't go to heaven to do nothing. He went to heaven to reign. And the word reign means to be active. He rules. And he arranges. And he just governs. All authority. What an amazing statement covers every inch and includes every second. All authority is his. And since he has said that the visible way into his visible kingdom is by baptism, we have to regard it as very important. It can never become a second-rate activity of the church. It's important because he announced it and he requires it and he will bless it. So the greatness of Jesus. I mean, people who 
are baptized or who are given baptism must confess the greatness of Jesus. It is an absolute necessity. So he's great. But then secondly, Jesus here talks about a global community. And earlier we mentioned the rather daunting effect this requirement may have had on his disciples. But I wonder how Jesus said this. Go and therefore make disciples of all nations. He didn't say go and try and make them. He said, go and make them. And surely when Jesus was saying this, there was a real sense of anticipation, of joy. How many have come into this kingdom? Well, all we have to do is try and imagine how many baptized people are in the world today. Now, we're not to react to that question and say, well, how many have done it? Wrongly, that's not the question to ask. The question is us to ask ourselves, how many have authentically been baptized in the world today? Who have the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on them? Millions and millions. And if we add to that, all the ones down the centuries who've done this, You know, this baptisms today are taking place in the free church building, but they're not being baptized into the free church. There's only one community in which you can get baptized into. And it's not defined by geographical areas or periods of time. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And what an amazing global community there is. The mark of identification is baptism. That they have the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit upon them. And it's also the mark of their unity. As Paul says, there's only one baptism. and into this global, global community. These two infants are going to be baptized shortly. They're joining it. An historic community. One that goes back to this day when Jesus announced this statement. And as he looked down the centuries, he was looking down, wasn't he, to what was going to happen here on the 9th of April, 2023. He doesn't have a literal diary. But in the equivalent of a literal diary, there's the dates of every baptism. His arranging all authority 
including the authority of providence, is in his hands. And we should be glad that we belong to it. It's a great privilege. The only kingdom that's guaranteed to last. And then thirdly, it's connected to God's family. And we can see there that they're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name, not three names. But um, where did the idea of family come from? I mean, that's an interesting question to ask, isn't it? And what is the original family, if you want to put it that way? The original family is the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We might call them the ultimate royal family, the eternal family. I mean, it's the basic feature of a family is that they love each other, isn't it? And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they love each other. God is love. Family love. Far above our level of love, of course. But still, that's who they are. The eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Living in harmony constantly. Full of blessing. But such was their desire that they in their wisdom, wanted other expressions of families. And the Bible tells us that there's two other expressions of families. There's the families of angels. Because there in the book of Job, they're called the sons of God. And there's also the family that's composed of saved sinners. And when we believe in Jesus, we are adopted into his family. Immediately. To just trust in Jesus. We hear the gospel, this invitation to repent of our sins and to trust in Jesus, to depend on him, to lean upon him. And the second person does that. They're adopted into God's family And as our catechism puts it, they're given a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And I suppose if there was something we'd want to add to that statement, we would want to say, immediately they're given a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. But still, they become his family. The father becomes the heavenly father. The Son becomes our elder brother. The Holy Spirit becomes the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption, in our hearts crying, Abba, Father, continually. 
It's a great family to belong to. What's the family name? We know the name of the royal family in our country. What's the family name that's mentioned here? As I, as I indicated a minute ago, it doesn't say the names of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. After the baptisms today, this, this divine name is on the children. And it's always there. great family to be introduced to. And the fourth thing is a great lifestyle. Jesus here says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We might think that sounds rather onerous. Or perhaps we might think it sounds rather threatening. How did Jesus regard his own requirements? Well, he tells us, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He's talking there about his commandments. He's not talking about life's experiences. Some of them can be very hard and difficult. But he is talking about his commandments. And he says about his commandments that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus does not have any unreasonable commandments. Everything he instructs us to do is suitable for us. There's none of his commandments that somebody can say, well, Jesus got that one wrong when he suggested that I should do it. Sometimes we imagine it might be easier not to obey a commandment. But if we go down that road, we'll discover there's a whole heap of problems come up. Whereas if we just do what he says, as his mother said to the, to the servants at the wedding in Cana, whatever he says to you, do it. And when we do it, we find out what the Apostle John said was the case. And it's a very blunt statement that he makes when he says his commandments are not grievous. And therefore, it's a great lifestyle suitable for those who are made in the image of God, which includes all of us. The ideal life for human beings. That's what Jesus offers to us. He offers us 
intellectual satisfaction, thinking about the greatest topics possible, not because we have been given great brains, as it were, but because we have him as the great teacher. And what a wonderful teacher he was. What is God like? Well, what would Jesus say to that? Well, God's like a shepherd. God's like a physician. God's even like a friend, a father. Intellectual things to think about. He creates a wonderful emotional life. Our affections find something totally satisfied. The love of God shed abroad in our hearts. It's God's love in our hearts. What an experience to have. And Jesus here is promising a, a great lifestyle to those who listen to what he says. And he doesn't say you can be selective about what he says. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. It comes as a package. And when it's utilized properly, the outcome is satisfaction. Jesus himself promised, didn't he? I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. To have in our souls a constant supply of heavenly grace satisfying our minds, stirring our emotions, guiding our feet as we move through life day by day. His commandments, his yoke is easy. His burden is light, as far as his instructions are concerned. And that's what baptism offers. Baptism here offers the best life possible. And then, sixthly, his gracious presence. <laughs> Lo, I am with you. Behold, I am with you. Always. The word there means all the days. Ever tried to work out how many days have passed since then? I haven't. It only came to my head just now. But anyway, it is an interesting idea, isn't it? Because Jesus is quite specific about the way he speaks. And he wants us to note that he's there all the days. There's never a day he's not going to be there. 
Indeed, there's never a moment he's ever going to leave us if we trust in him. I mean, why is that? Or how is that? Well, the answer, as I'm sure most of us know, is that the Holy Spirit comes to live within the, the souls of those who believe in him. But he comes in a special way. He comes as the Spirit of Jesus. It's almost as if when Jesus said, I will send you another comforter. And I'm sure we've been told that in the original language, there's two words that can be translated another. You could get another person who's a total stranger to you. Or you could get another person who's your twin. And it's the second word that's used there when Jesus says, I will send another comforter. It's one exactly the same as me. So Jesus is with them, with us if we're Christians. Every moment of every day. That's his promise, promise of baptism. As I mentioned earlier, when he was talking about God, speaking about himself, he's a good shepherd, carries his sheep on his shoulders, singing all the way. What a wonderful picture. He's a great physician who heals our wounds and our problems and whatever experiences come along in life. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. All that is promised in baptism. Baptism, as we close, well, it's got obligations because it's a covenant arrangement. Our God's a covenant God. If we do certain things, he'll do certain things. He's promised to bless us if we do what Jesus has stipulated here, living according to his word and so on. But how are we to respond to baptism? The fact that it's here again, what should be in our minds, in the minds of the families who are getting baptism? How are they to do it? Well, it's got to be done by faith. What does that mean? Well, it means they have to take the vows and live the life depending on God. That's what faith is. Looking to him Constantly, expectantly. We've also got to respond with love. This is a loving action that's taking place today. It's a loving action by, the, by God. And it's a loving activity by the parents. And it should be a loving action by the congregation. It's a time for embracing love. 
And we should also engage in this with determination. Said already, this is not just an, an action to get through some kind of ritual of passage. This is the start of a life of dedication. I've no doubt the families have been dedicated up until now. But on this occasion, they are making a public declaration of their dedication. And so is the congregation. What are we going to do in the future with regard to these two children? Pray for them. Never do anything in the years ahead that's going to hinder them. And we should do this occasion with gratitude. Grateful that Jesus has a kingdom. Grateful that sinners are welcomed into the kingdom. Grateful that we can start being in the kingdom from our earliest days. Grateful that in his kingdom there are blessings untold. It's a wonderful occasion. Shall we pray? <laughs>